what's happening. Welcome to season three of Apples and Snakes, the podcast. I'm your host, Yomi Shode, and we have a whole new set of poets and are still focusing on what it means to be black, British, and a poet or spoken word artist. If you are interested in getting a greater insight into the journeys of some of your faves, then join us and keep listening. Saying that, if you do like what you're hearing, remember to subscribe wherever you would usually listen to your podcasts and rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am excited. We are live. We're going for it. Welcome, welcome to the Apples and Snakes podcast. Your host, Yomi Shode. I am here. I'm in the mix. And I am really, really, really privileged and thankful to be speaking with our guest today. I remember a point where the first time I saw... Anthony, oh, you did. Hi, how you doing, Anthony? Hi, how you doing, good sir? I'm, you, you I'm good, good, man. I'm, I'm about good. to go for it because I, I always have a random entry, yeah, yeah. and and my random entry is I think it was at Dulwich. I think it was a it was a conference or a sh- or something at, at at Dulwich University. I think it is or something along those lines. And you was on a panel, and I've I've only ever heard of you, right? And I'm like, oh my god! I remember when I saw you, I was just like, that is the guy. And then when <laughs> I plucked the courage and I was to come up to you one time, I was just like, hi, my name's Yomi, blah, blah, blah. You had your hat, you got the rings, everything popping off. And you just said, good to meet you. And I was just like, you know what? I am, I, I am very thankful. It was one of those moments. And mm. what, I didn't, what I didn't bank on or what I didn't know was just the space and the time that you would, you know, offer and create for me as a young writer at that point in time, and I'm very, very thankful. Mm-hmm. And it's an absolute pleasure to have grown alongside you in that sense, in terms of the work and just kind of like taken back in, turn, in terms of the work that you've done over the years. And I'm really, really, really thankful, man. I just wanted to say that before we kick into gear. Um, yeah. That it's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you right it. now. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. I mean, we we can talk off 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 mic about this, man. But yeah, it's you know, it's great to be here and great to to sort of witness people like yourself as well coming up, you know, and basically taking over, man. At some point, because you know, we're in good hands, you know. I think when with people like yourself and other writers of your generation, I think you're the generation, probably maybe two generations below me, almost, mm. uh, because you're you're quite young, I think. So, <laughs> yeah. so that generation is kind of taking the battle and moving forward again, man. So it's great. It's great to see it, you know. So yeah, thank you. Um, I am speaking to the one and only um Anthony Joseph, um T. S. Eliot, prize-winning Anthony Joseph. I had to kind of put that in there as well as long, <laughs> as 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 well as many other accolades, books albums which I'm really interested in and I'm looking forward to getting into and I, I I'm wondering how to start this and I think I would I would what, what one of my interests and one of my thoughts is what what don't people often know about you that that what is like a quite what is an interesting thing that you feel that oh for the most part yes they might be aware of this 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 but they might not be aware of this. Mm. Wow. I think um, probably people might be aware that, you know, when I first came to the UK in 89, for the first couple of years, for the first two or three years, I was basically in a, in a black rock band. You know? <laughs> that was what I was doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was a singer and I was a singer in a, in a, in a rock band. You know, essentially, I, I came here... Um, to essentially to do music, to write as well, but mainly to do to do music, you know. So as soon as I got here, I started a band and then started like touring around, uh, mainly London. And that was the time of sort of you know black rock was a real thing. And even in London, there was a scene. There was a black rock scene, mm. and I was part of that. People like um, 
oh gosh, Z, Z Star was around, people like Skunk and Nancy mm. were around in a sort of embryonic stage. And there were a lot of other bands like trying to do this, this thing in London that was happening. It was happening in the, in the States as well. It was living color and bad brains. It was that time. Yeah. Uh, late eighties, early nineties. And I was part of that here. Yeah. So I had a band and we did that for a few years, did that from about 89 to about 93 and then stopped. Um, but yeah, so people don't know that. I mean, luckily there aren't any, I don't think there's any videos around <laughs> that period. It'd be very embarrassing <laughs> if anyone admitted anything like that. But yeah. That's why I was going to ask whether you would mind if you remember the name or if if you don't want to share the name, but at least if you know one of the singles that so we can get like a, a flavor of nah. what one of those titles was. <laughs> no, nah, we never really, we never really um, got to that stage. My band was called Zed. And actually the uh, the bass player that uh, I played with in that band is the same guy I play with now, Andrew John. He's a, amazing. He's, you know, an amazing friend of mine that I've known since 91. Um, so he, yeah, he was in that, in that band and, but we never really released singles officially like that. We were, you know, there wasn't much of a sort of, um, there wasn't a lot of commercial support for bands like that in the UK at that time. It was very, very, very hard to get a deal and stuff like that. So we just, we just played gigs. We just played a lot of gigs, did a lot of demos and had fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am. I am often. I'm often asked, "Oh, when did you, when did you decide to be a poet, and, or would you class yourself as a poet?" And some, you know, there was a there was a period where there was a struggle there because there were other areas mm-hmm. that I was writing in, like music being one of them. Um, I was writing all these different facets that I didn't necessarily know how to place myself in these areas. Sure. And I one sure. I'm wondering with with yourself, like how how would you best describe you to a certain degree? Like if if it, you know the elevator pitch is almost like one of the most anxious, anxiety driven mm-hmm. things ever. If you know this, you're in this lift and it's going up with like two three floors, and in those yeah. two three and what's that like 30, 20 seconds, if that to kind of yeah describe yourself or talk about yourself. But if you yeah. uh if we were to kind of use that concept, so to speak, in relation to how you would best describe Anthony mm. Joseph, what would that what would that be? Oh, I think I'm a poet. I think I'm definitely a poet. I mean, I wasn't wasn't always a poet. wasn't always someone who could claim that that title because it's a big it's a big deal. It's a big title. It yeah. means a lot of things for a lot of people, you know. And you sort of embed yourself in a tradition that is bigger than you. When yeah, you say, well, yeah. I'm a poet, you know, it's a huge thing. Um, but I kind of realized that I was that, and I was able to claim that probably in probably mid-90s, probably about mm. 93. Uh, you mm. know, something, something kind of profound happened to me. It was like an epiphany. I was, uh, I mean, I've been writing since I was a child in Trinidad. I was writing since I was about 11, yeah. writing poetry, growing up all through the teenage years, writing poetry. And what I did was I wrote in these exercise books, these little notebooks. You probably know them, these soft cover exercise mm-hmm. books, essentially, we used to call yeah. them. And I used, to, I used to fill one out. I had this task going through, you know, growing up that I was going to fill one of these out a month. So I would complete one a month. And I, I yeah. just got obsessed with writing in them. So for years and years and years, all through like from 11 to about, I don't know, 19, I was just writing, writing, writing. Um, and then when I left Trinidad, I brought them with me. Mm. And then in 90, probably about 93, I was at home and I had a, I had an injury in my foot. I couldn't really go out and, um, started looking back and we had a typewriter in the house, this old sort of manual typewriter. And I thought, you know what, let me just start typing out some of these poems and see what's mm. there. And I opened this box out and it was this cobweb and all sorts of things. <laughs> and I was like, at that point, at that moment, I realized, damn, you know, you came all the way from Trinidad with this box of papers and box of writing that you've done since you were 11. Yeah, okay, you're a poet. Yeah, you're <laughs> you know? And at that point, I, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm claiming that, you know. Was there, so yeah, what, it was specific. Would you, would you... 
would you mark that as like the light bulb moment, like the significant point where you're mm. just like, all right, cool. Was there do you, was there like a specific poem that you like that you got really? I, I kind of class poems as like, um, mm. do you know, like singles. <laughs> you got yeah. your, you got your, you got your first single as the banger. Like, what was, what was, mm. what was that hit single of a poem for you that you was just <laughs> like, you know, that you felt like, okay. This is getting people going. This is there's something here that's kind of working. Whether it's for you or whether you read it aloud for people to yeah. be like, oh, what is that? I mean, it's I don't think there was any one particular poem. It was just looking through all that stuff that I'd written. And I mean, you know, it's not that I'd stopped writing. I was still writing because I was working with a band and I was writing lyrics constantly. So there was a, it didn't stop. I mean, you know, I wrote all this stuff when I was a teenager and I continued writing, but never really took myself seriously as a poet. Never thought it was, it was, that's what I was doing. Yeah. But then looking through that and then looking at what I was doing and sort of variation of stuff that I was trying, I was trying to do some, you know, experimental stuff. And I could tell I had a voice at that point And I was like, yeah, you know, this is, this is what, you need to sort of dedicate yourself to. But there wasn't a specific single poem. I, I remember writing a poem uh, for my brother on the birth of his first son. This would have been 93, 92, 93. And it was quite spontaneous. He called me and said, I've just had a son, you're an uncle. And he was, he was, you know, it was overwhelming for both of us. Yeah. And in that moment, yeah, it's pretty overwhelming, it's, you know, deep. And at that time, I started writing this poem straight off, straight after the phone call. Mm. And it was all, it was perfect. Mm. <laughs> and I realized, wow, you, 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 you can do this. <laughs> you can, you actually can do this thing. Yeah. It was a perfect poem up to now. It's not, I haven't changed anything in it. It's like really, yeah. At that point I thought, hmm. Yeah, there's something spiritual. Poetry is a spiritual art, you know. I'm yeah. sure you know yourself when you when you get into the frequency. Yeah, you kind of know what you're doing. There is a um, there's a there's something here about the self validation that I would love to explore with you at some point in this conversation mm. as well. Because the way you the way you even said that in terms of when you when you thought back to that poem and you wrote it and you smiled, you're just like, yeah, you know what, I, this is. Yeah, this is good. You know, this is. Yeah, you didn't need to yeah. hear that from anyone else. Just what I mean. No. I'm really keen to kind of to 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 touch on that um, in a bit. And I, I'm um, the transition. Ah, the transitions between the, the short form, long form. How you kind of move into novel. You see what I mean? How you, even in your lectures for the most part, it, with the lectures, you have to almost map it out in terms of how you're going to set yeah. out this talk in terms of to the students. Um, mm -hmm. Can we, can we explore that for a bit in terms of like, how, how were these transitions from you? Uh, yeah. How was these transitions for you in relation to like poetry into like music, into, into novels and and mm. and then not only are you writing specific, like not only are you writing novels, you you are literally experimenting with new forms that yeah. might not necessarily make sense to people, but it's what you want to do. Do you see what I mean? What was that mm. like in terms of those those shifts? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I think um, what happened for me was that because I'd been writing uh, poetry for so long there came a point where I started, you know, after I published maybe one, two, two poetry collections, second poetry collection, uh, had a kind of theme running through it. There were ideas, there were sections that had particular themes. They weren't necessarily narrative themes, but there was definitely the sections of the book that were about specific things. Yeah. And at that point I started thinking of, size and, and sort of capacity of a book to contain uh, bigger ideas mm. than just a series of single poems. So I, I think that was in my mind probably from the mid-90s, you know, from like 95, 96, thinking in terms of a bigger canvas, essentially, yeah. you know. Um, and then I found a narrative or a narrative found me. A story mm. really had a, an impact on me. Um, and it was a simple idea. It was a simple story, but that grew and grew. And I thought, you know what? I want to write about this, but this is not a poem. Mm. 
Mm. And it's not even a series of poems. It's it's a narrative. It's a bigger structure. So how do I do it? But I had no idea. As a poet, I had no idea of how to start and structure a novel. So I kind of did a lot of research and read a lot of books that were doing the same, read a lot of writers that were straddling that sort of poetic prose yeah. uh, slash novel thing. And I realized that it was possible and I started started trying it. Uh, but when a poet writes a novel, they're essentially writing a new kind of novel each time because mm. you poetry and, and fiction, they, although they're very, they use the same language, they are very different in approach. Yeah. So you find you find ways as a poet to tell a story in your own sort of idiosyncratic way, you know, uh, and that's where the experimentation comes in. You know, I think most poets, when they write fiction, end up with something that steps outside or sort of mm. straddles genres in some way, because poetry doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't like to be captured in a narrative for 200 pages it wants to move it wants to go in different directions it wants to hit various parts of the body so that's what happens so you end up with something that's that's new Um, but something that's painstakingly that takes you a long time and you know the first novel took me probably about i don't know six years because every yeah because every word has to earn its place man just like you write a poem if you imagine translating that to a novel, every word is earning its place. You know, you're taking years. Yeah, and the thing is, even if you at a point of finishing one project, you almost have to have another one in the tuck that you're working on oh, at the yeah. same time. The, the whole idea of just kind of splitting. Because I was thinking, oh, you know what, my brain needs a bit of rest. But then, you know what, then I think about what the editing process is like. And then, I think, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, oh my God. Yeah. It takes yeah, it takes yeah. proper time, and I think there's some behind the scenes yeah, yeah. that people don't necessarily acknowledge. That you know this yeah. this it takes time. Yeah, it takes proper yeah. proper time. Yeah. You know, and it should do. It should do. Significant moments, and I I don't even know where or what you're gonna pick. Like in terms of things, or moments, points in time that you're proud of. <sighs> I don't, and I think there's so many. Is it is it music? Is it in poetry? Is it in is it is it in the fiction and the novel? Like, do you what do you what are the points in which you can, if there are low days, you remember this one point in time that just keeps you going. It almost fires you up again and just keeps you going to be like, you know what, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? that happened? Wow. I mean, there's been a few, there's been a few, but the main ones, I guess, um, pretty early on, I guess, um, well, actually not that early on, in about 2005, um, after I'd been writing for many years and uh, published a couple books of poetry and I was working on a novel, first novel, um, I met a, a, this uh, professor Laurie Shire, from who's uh, teaching in LA, Cal State LA, and um, she knew my work. She'd she'd been introduced to what I'd been doing through a, a mutual friend, and she was really she was really into it. She was really into what I was doing. She's very um, someone that's into Black British writing, Black experimental yeah. writing, especially. And um, through her, she invited me to go to LA for six weeks to be a uh, poet in residence at Cal State LA. Mm. Um, and that was a really pivotal, transformative experience for me because up until that point, I was I felt like I was writing in a vacuum because there was very little going on here in terms of sort of black British experimental writing. There was there was very little going on. We weren't getting published. You know, there were very few black poets being published full stop you know, in the UK in the, in the nineties, uh, and in the two thousands, in the early two thousands, there's very few of us. Mm. Uh, so I felt very much, I was writing in my own corner and I was doing my own thing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I met her and she sort of contextualized what I was doing and showed me the tradition that I was part of the Caribbean tradition of experimental mm. writing, you know, people like Kim Au and, you know, Anthony McNeil. And at that point I realized that, 
you know, what I was doing had a place and had mm. an importance. So that was very important. That was pivotal. Um, and then, you know, after that, a lot of things started happening. A lot of things like, you know, I came back, started finishing my novel, got a call from Salt Publishing. Mm. Um, and the guy, you know, Chris said, uh, I've heard you, I, I heard you're writing the science fiction thing. I want to publish it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was that. That was the, the, the first mainstream publishing for me in sort of in 20, 2006. So that was a pivotal moment. You know, it's not often a publisher calls you up and say, hey, you know, I heard you're, you're I heard, writing yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to publish it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, it's big. yeah, they were kind of pivotal moments. You are well-traveled, man. Your passport must be like... It must, yeah, it must just yeah. be, your passport <laughs> must just be shattered. Yeah. <laughs> In yeah. terms of what it's looking like. And yeah. for the most part, I, 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 I look forward to traveling to this, to, to some extent in the same way you have traveled, because I don't know how literature works. Cause you know, there's this kind of, there's a black British aesthetic in the landscape that I see, but at the same time, when, of the places that I have gone, the way that my work has been received has been insane. And mm-hmm. it can almost make you feel like you are in a vacuum if you're here for the, for mm-hmm. the most part. It, because the work mm. isn't doing what you're thinking, but I'm not writing no bullshit. Like I'm writing, I'm writing yeah. good work. So why is it not? Yeah, yeah. Why is it not translating? And then you travel, and then you mm. see the effects of what this work can do. Do you right. mind speaking on just? The, the different countries that you have traveled to, that your work has gone to and how it's been received. And at, at any point, does it kind of revitalize and kind of bring new energies when you come here? Because I do have friends that are like, Yo, I'm not coming back to Britain. My work is not <laughs> received here at all. Out yeah. there, my work is, resist, is received and it can almost make you feel right. when you're here, like your work does not exist, like your work is not good enough. So I, I, mm. I hear so many different sides of this, but it, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts in terms of how you've traveled and how you found your work to be received and what energy does that kind of bring in you whenever you do arrive back in, in yeah. England and, and, and to, do the, to yeah. carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've had an interesting um career in the sense that I do music and I've done, you know, I've released like eight albums in the last 15 years. So for the past 15 years, I've had a parallel career as a musician, a band leader, vocalist, alongside being a novelist and a poet here. Mm. And I would say that the music career is what has kind of taken me a lot of places. I mean, you know, I've been a lot of places, you know, doing literature and stuff like that, but music, being in a band and touring for 15 years throughout Europe, the world, whatever, that is what's been sort of main, uh, the, the main sort of thing that's taken me abroad, I yeah. would say. Um, but in a very different way, you know, with music, you go and you play a gig, you come back, you go somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. There's very little, you don't really spend a lot of time in a place. With literature, there's a sense that you arrive in a place where people usually already know your work, at least. I mean, you know, if you're invited to read at a university, let's say, some of the students know your work or the professors know your work. So it feels there's more resonance there. And I think that's what you mean. You know, when you get to the space, people know kind of what you're doing. It's resonant. They've read it or they've heard about you. They've looked at you online or whatever. So there's a sense of resonance. Um, music is, is hit and go, hit and mm. go, usually. Um, but I think as well that um, in terms of how the work is received, I think, yeah, I mean, it's been well received in the U.S. Um, it's been, you know, because I've done a lot of work in the U.S. in the last few years, so it's done really well there. I don't understand how that works because... For me, the work is very Caribbean. I mean, my work is very is very Caribbean and a fusion of and a Caribbean work and experimental ideas and stuff. So, for me, the, I was you know I was in Chicago recently, and I did a reading there, 
And people were coming up to me after and saying, wow, you know, that was amazing. I had that same experience. I felt that. that you know, and mm. I'm like, wow, you're, you're so far away culturally, but you're getting it. Mm. I think what people get is the, the humanity, the honesty. You know, that's what they're responding to in the work, you know, yeah. the, the heart of it, you know. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I could sort of riff on that, but yeah, that's no, essentially no, no, no. It's, it's, responding, it's, you know. And are you, you know, you said it already in terms of you being just taken back by it and what have you. Um, but as you, are you genuinely surprised if you go to different different places and they talk when you're working or you be like, oh, the, wait, what, what? Like, do you, do, does that still happen yeah. in the sense of like when you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in this same Chicago uh, reading, this guy, uh, a guy who I've never met the guy, never met him, he came up to me and was comparing two of the poems in the collection and saying, you know, in this poem you say this, and in that poem you say this. Oh, what? And that's a really interesting experience. He knew exactly, he knew, oh, yeah, when you're standing on a cliff here, that's really, that's, you know, I'm like, wow, you really read this thing deeply, <laughs> you know? That's the beautiful. I'm sure you've had that experience where you, you go somewhere and people can quote a line for you from your poem. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. because they've read it, and you you have no idea who your readers are. Sometimes, man, that's the beauty of what we do. You know, and the, the, I was in the, Australia, and people knew what I was doing. The, like, um, wow, okay. It's funny as well because it's like with with, with music, you have fans, right? They'll turn up to your concerts, yeah. whatever it is. And it's very rare that I speak with poets and, and they they acknowledge to hear that they have fans. It's almost like it seems a bit yeah. too... <laughs> it seems a bit too yeah. highbrow just to be like, I have fans of my work. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When, when really yeah. and truly, you do. <laughs> like, you absolutely well. do. People, people, people turn up... You know, there's, there's the one person that probably turns up to the same... To, to other gigs yeah. I've heard... Your po- that one poem like 16 times but they just love to just <laughs> hear you read do you know what I mean like it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think that I, you know personally I don't think there's a shame in in the admittance of poets having fans of their work that will travel to see mm. them read or perform their work it's almost like I don't know yeah. I can't explain it's almost like there's this kind of humbleness no, to, to poets to be like oh, yeah. you know I just appreciate people that just that are there but yo no like you you have fans, you know? But you know, you know what I find about that, man? When I first started started off doing this, you know, started doing spoken word and doing and writing and all that, there was a saying at that time that the only people who turn up to readings and people who were interested in poetry were other poets. You mm. know. So you would do yeah. So there was that, you know, so you would go to readings, you do readings, and, and a lot of people would be writers, a lot of people would be your peers, you know. Yeah. Now I think now it's changed. I think thanks to your generation, it's become a thing. It's become a mm. thing where people go who are not necessarily writers, who just are exposed to writing and exposed to poets and love it yeah, and want to yeah. have that experience. Yeah, yeah. So it's become an experience. So you guys have fans <laughs> in that way, you know. Is there, um, going back to your younger years, if you could think, if you can think to a younger kind of Anthony Joseph, what advice do you think you would have liked to have received that you'd oh, give wow. yourself now? Like, what would, what would, just, just looking back, it's almost like if you look across the room and you see a younger you, what advice do you <laughs> think you would have liked to kind of receive at that time? To, you know, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, to create an alter ego for yourself, Someone that sta- that you know, someone that steps up, that stands outside, and sort of deals with all the sort of self publicity and the sort of you know, the business side of thing to create an alter ego that could do that while you do your yeah, work thing. behind scenes, you know. Because I never did that. I, j- I just went into it naked. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's me, it's me. There was no subriquet, <laughs> you know. There was no subriquet, you know. And I watch a. Uh, friends of mine that have done like musicians that have done that you know i've got this friend um kaziah jones nigerian musician who's Mm. who created this whole persona and this whole alter ego that would go out into the world and be that guy almost like an actor would do it Mm. but the real person behind that is someone different you know Mm. so i always wish that i had known back then to create that persona 
just to to handle the sort of business side of things or the sort of, you know, the side that you have to do a certain amount of work. You have to, you can't just sit in your corner and write. You have to be out there doing stuff, meeting people, networking. Mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, I was never into that stuff. But I wish that I had someone, a persona that I could create that could do just that. Create, you know what I mean? Just do it, yeah. That yeah. phantom. No one yeah. sees them, but they yeah. can always hear them in the email. <laughs> um, to, to, to imagine writers now, I don't know how much you're in conversations or finger on the pulse of, of writers or emerging writers now. Um, it's always such a, when I, when I think of advice to a certain degree or what, what thoughts would, would, would you like to share in relation to like writers now? It could be the same thing actually, create your alter ego, do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? But is there anything burning when you kind of see the, the the rise of what this younger generation of writers look like, if you know what I mean, um, and any piece of advice yeah. that you would like to give them. Yeah, I think so. I think what helped me and what I think is really necessary for young writers is to to write a lot, to write and write every day. Essentially, you know, dedicate yourself. Give yourself a couple of years where you write every single day, and after that period. When you, if you, if you miss a day, feel guilty, <laughs> you know, feel bad about it. Once you get to that stage, it's like anything else. If you're into, you know, keeping fit or whatever, going to the gym, if you go to the gym every other day for a couple of years or so, it becomes part of your life, part of your routine. Yeah. And if you miss a couple of days, you feel bad. You're like, oh man, I, you know, get to that point where you feel bad. And then you begin to become your own editor. Or your own, you know, you be, you begin to be able to read your work and know if it's good or not. You know, we were talking earlier in the beginning about that poem that I wrote that I knew was good. Mm. It's because I've been writing for so long and I knew at that point, I knew what was good and bad in the work, you know. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, the new generation, the newer generation suffer from a lack of confidence. Because there's so much, they have so much to draw on, so much different access to different writers, so much information that sometimes they're a bit confused about what they're doing and whether or not it's good or has value because there's so much competition. Yeah. yeah. So you have to get to a, a point as a writer, as a young writer, where you've written so much that you can look at your work and say, okay, I need to change that. I know that's the wrong word. I'm going to change that. I knew, I know this line is a powerful line. I know it. I know what I'm doing. And just know it. And that's that takes time. That takes at least a couple of years of just working steadily. And you know and with that steady work, there's this um there's this image that comes to mind, right? It's split into two men digging. They're digging, 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 mm. digging. And um the one up top, dig, 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 and then he turns around. The guy, the mm. same person below, dig, 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 and there's this nugget mm. of gold. That's one mm. dig away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see the guy up top is like, you know what? This is long. You see how long this page is running? That's how long I've been digging for, yeah? I'm going yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah, put yeah. this on my shoulder <laughs> and I'm walking home. The guy at the bottom is just one away and the gold is right there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. speaks to a lot. It speaks to career. It speaks to... <sighs> It speaks to the highs and lows of this journey that you 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 can only trust is going somewhere. And mm-hmm. I say this to say that in in relation to you and your career, you it, it you touched on poetry being a spiritual thing. You trust and 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 I'm wondering whether you trust the process in terms of where you're going because I can only imagine <clears throat> there were some highs. And there's some lows. You talked about the vacuum moments mm-hmm. where you're thinking, yeah. it's almost like Twitter sometimes when you tweet something and then you're like, right, is, am I just talking mm-hmm. to myself and no one is seeing it? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah. how, what's kept you going? Like, what did you trust yourself in your process and what's kind of kept you going in this career um, that hasn't had you at a red light to just turn and be like, you know what, this is, this is long. <laughs> 
This is yeah. this is absolutely long. You know what? It's it's, it's 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 it is it is it's simple. It's love. You know, it's love for the craft. Mm. You know, it's the feeling that I get. The feeling that I get now when I sit down at night. This you know, if I start a work at two in the morning or whatever, the feeling that I get when I start to open that page and look at the poems and start to edit them and work them or to write a new piece of work. It's the same feeling I got when I was writing when I was 11. It's that there's a, it's more than just a pleasure. It's more of a, a centering, a centering space that just feels good. It feels that I'm at one, you know, I'm at one with the world. I'm at one with everything, with all the energy. I'm at one. And that feeling, I think that's love. I think that's a love. It's the same feeling that you get for your, you know, your, 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 your children when, when you hold them. There's a, it's love. It's loving what you do. If you love what you do, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a saying, anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. Mm. Right? And poetry is like that. If you love what you're doing enough, it's going to give you stuff. It's going to give you that a sense of, a sense of wholeness, a sense of transcendence, you know, it's going to give you that. And that is what keeps me going. You know, the, the feeling of transcendence, the feeling of writing a piece that I know has value beyond me, you know, beyond me and my lifetime. It's, it's something that resonates and people can, you know, can feel. Um, that's what it is. I mean, it sounds esoteric, but really that's what it is. It um it's beautiful, and I think you know the the there's something about the centering of self that I think that alone is a is a journey that the individual has to take themselves through and find. Um, yeah, and and that in itself, the the and you know I think I've gone through that in growing growing my hair, for example, because that kind of like it makes me kind of look at something and treat myself in a very different way and look into things. It very differently in order to kind of find how best to center myself in it. So, um, you know, esoteric or not, I think that's a really, yeah, man, thank you for, for, for adding that. And to something that <laughs> I want to touch on. So I spoke to my, I've spoken to Malaika, I've spoken to Khadija, Ibrahim, Shirley May. They all have one thing in common and, 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 and I've spoken to Roger. Yeah. Yeah. And of these folks have had something in common in their own style and signature, yeah. And I know uh-huh. Anthony Joseph has this signature of the rings and the jewels <laughs> and the bangles, baby, and the style of things, yeah. <laughs> so I want to touch on style real quick while I have you because I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm style. Style is a thing, and it's almost iconic. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those ones, yeah. That if you if there was an image of you, bro, I feel like it's a very it's an iconic image that's going to be of you because mm. you, we will know you straight away, same way that we would know Malika, same way that we know Khadija. Yeah. For you, in relation to your jewelry, to the hat, to the to the to just to the style, mm-hmm. what part does that play in in yeah, what part does that play in everything? Do you see what I mean? Because I feel like they've, they've, <laughs> they've with the jewelry, Malik has definitely spoken on that, and I'm really interested in in what part that plays in relation to yeah. just you as a whole. Yeah, gosh, um, you know, to be honest, it's something that I, I didn't really uh, growing up. I didn't really think about it too much. So it's sort of recently being um, a performer, you know be getting up on stage actually i started sort of mainly collecting rings and stuff once i started touring with the band and that was like 15 years you know we would go different places yeah you know we'd go to morocco whatever and go to the market in morocco and there was loads of silver people selling rings and i bought a couple there you know places in france started buying stuff you know so for me it's about they they symbolize a, de- a sense of traveling, like they're, mm. they're symbols of, of places I've been, uh, experiences I've had. Um, you know, I grew up, um, my father, when I grew up, you know, my father wasn't around, but when I would see him, he was always really stylish. You know, he wore a lot mm. of rings, really sharp dresser, a dude, you know. <laughs> and dude. I think <laughs> a dude, yeah. <laughs> And I think that rubbed off on me at a young age. I was like, okay, 
he had style. So I was like, damn, I got to have that kind of swagger. I got to have that style. Mm. I got to look, you got to, the way you present yourself has to be a poem in itself. You know, it has to be a work of art in itself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that kind of stuck with me, but you know, uh, I, I, I don't think you could be sort of led by that too much. I think you start thinking of image all the time. It's problematic. It becomes problematic. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I think like, I think there is, I was just really keen and I, and I wondered, and I think there is, a, there is an absolute, and thank you for sharing that story in relation to the, to the rings in terms of the travel. Um, Cause I was just like, mm. all right, cool. There are key people. And I had a and I, and I mentioned it with Roger. I was just like this, this. There's a it's a it's a statement within itself. Do you see what I mean? Because it's almost yeah, like absolutely. in relation to to poets, that it feels mm-hmm. like there's a specific kind of presentation that poetry needs to be. And I'm just like, why? Like, why can't we kind of like embrace the full styles of what we want to embody as well as the work that yeah. we're doing as well? And so I just wanted to check to yeah. see if there was a story behind yeah, that on yeah. your side. Um, yeah. Poem, poem. Do you have a poem to share for us, oh, please? Gosh. Um, yeah, I was going to uh, read a, a new poem. Well, a newish poem that I'm working on. So I have this book, this new book with Bloomsbury next year, which is New and Selected Works. Um, and this is, yeah, so this is a poem from that collection, which is called, the poem is called Elbows of the Land. Uh, And it's broken up into three sections. Mm. Elbows of the Land. Guyanese trees. Red howler monkeys and green trees. Aluta Maconelli. In mountains where the river wide and mighty like the sea. We stand there, wooden bridge, horizon, she says, horizon, Guyana, right there. Look at the trees. But those trees were simply yokes joined at the cusp of vertical Vs. And amidst this beauty, she weaves, leaves, and returns to the world below. I climb higher earthen steps to my grandmother's house, see her leaning over the lower Dutch door of her kitchen opening her heart on that mint green morning to tell me to be careful as I walk along the mudside coming up where it's black and slippery. It's only when the credits begin to taper up that the woman re-emerges, the muse of ages, rainforest and river locks, of soft bridges and bridges which are safe and wooden walkways suspended so delicate over raging river tide. Sound calling down into jungle, high track and valley, mansion and veranda, hid in bush like a cornered snake, all hiss and no teeth. Mm. The publisher. Train along the periphery. Grass virgin swooped to steep falling from town to shining town along an upwards jungle elastic and above the hush crop of treetops, the road between the leaves and lumps of tree stumps. Shifting down and recklessly from branch to bending branch was where the publisher hid his house among the beaks and craw of the mountain. Elbows of the land between each thin vine stretched and showed me reams of unsold books under his coffee table. The Bandon. Shuffling in the delta, between paddy rice and wetland jamborees, crossing the land in a silver Ford Falcon, cliff and ancient highland, saw the land spread out like swampland, raw, majestic, the bushing cane, while heading south, south of the land, so vast and multiple, to the end of the world right there, beyond the pine coves and recessed gullies, world within world, passing through the cold iron pillars, rust at gateways going down south, down to the edge of the world. Ghost road to the rim, so we stop, but stopping even once is to fall, is to fall into the hollow footholds cattle push into the soft country dirt. Cow dung and fraggy panny in the orphanage garden. There was a young man, foot wet up, hard back and khaki, waiting while black by the side of the road. 
his cutlass hand hung long beside him and asked him if beyond the plains and abandoned land was where the sea was high and overflowing. Was there the precise overfall and fall over the edge of the world? We drive uphill motorway, encounter small towns, encounter a haberdashery, epics of balderdash, going down Mendez Drive. Far uphill their motorway, the car shut down, crank on the hard brake like hard prick, budge but it won't budge, keep chugging back, try gear back in first, jump, gear strolling, won't pump, and the groom, so not to leave the wedding banquet, deny to come out on the road to help push it back up. Time we drive out of this sudden town near Mammon Church, you heard me say, death, you surprise me. Driven against the death of things is a sign so singular in gesture that its sparkle is etched onto air. Thank you so much. So, yeah, that's a... That sounds exciting. Because my question, (laughs) I was going to ask what you're working on right now, and that sounds like, yeah, you're building towards that one. Yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing, you know, a few things at the same time. I'm working on that. I'm working on a collection of essays. Uh, which I'm really enjoying. And um, I'm working on a new album. So writing lyrics, a whole set of 15 different lyrics for, for this new album. Yeah, yeah. So it's that a big, big ass. I don't know yeah. how you split your brain, but I think you've worked it in such a way that it's like, it's just, it's just, it's formulaic. You just know exactly when to tap into that pocket and how to just kind of go for it. Just what I mean. Like it's, yeah, it's with time, as you're saying, in terms of something that you you grow to. It's a discipline, and with that discipline, you know exactly yeah. when to get into that pocket. And I too have those days, you know. If I feel like I haven't like yeah. sat down to write anything, I feel bad. I feel like, oh my god, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the thing yeah, hits yeah, me yeah. bad. I'm like, you know that it's a, it's two days now. You know, it's a week. You know, it's two weeks now. I'm just like, oh my yeah, oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's um, good. <laughs> Anything that you are, what are you reading and what are you listening to right now? Oh, uh, oh, listening, uh, you can't ask me that, man. That's crazy. Because, you know, I collect records. <laughs> I buy vinyl. So, my gosh, a lot of stuff listening to, a lot of jazz, a lot of a lot of stuff I picked up recently on travels that I haven't been able to, to listen to yet. So, a lot of stuff from, I was in New Zealand and Auckland and there's this amazing record shop downtown. I picked up some stuff there, some jazz bits. And, um, but reading, I'm reading this book at the moment called Praiseworthy. I'll show you. Mm. This is a a book called Praiseworthy by Alexis Wright. who's an Aboriginal writer from Australia. Mm. And the book is like, you know, this is the size. The book is almost as big as my face. Yeah, man. It's like 700 pages, but it's, it's amazing. So wow. I'm digging into that because uh, I'm looking for, you know, inspiration for a new novel that I want to start in the next year. So, so I'm reading epics. I'm trying to read some epics. And that's definitely one. Before, um, before we wrap up, I, I just had a thought to you when we were talking about the vinyls and you're going into, into different you know, stores, depending on the country, and you just kind of take a beat to just look for the vinyl. And this thing about process is, I, I, you know, part, please excuse my assumption here, is is you can be in a record store for like 30 to maybe 45 to an hour, like, mm-hmm. and, but in that time, even if you're there and you only buy one, there's something about the process that, that feeds into mm. the writing, that feeds into the thinking, that feeds into all of these mm-hmm. different things, right? That yeah. you are not yeah. rushing. I think, you know, I think you've worked your, your you've worked into, into a space where it's like, listen, if I need an hour just to mm. process this and I come out of this store not buying anything, I would have already stored so much in my mind in terms of ideas and possibilities and what have you. And yeah. am I too far yeah. off track in that? Or like, do you mind talking on... You're absolutely right. Do you mind talking... Was there a point in which you rushed things and now you're like, you know what, actually, I don't need to rush things. I just need to trust in the process in how long <laughs> it takes, Yeah. how long it takes and 
just know that I'm collecting memory. I'm collecting, I'm collecting yeah. thoughts. I'm collecting ideas for every interaction I have. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you mind touching on that just a bit? And and because I'm really interested by that, just the thought of you walking into that. Well, I think shop. you've said it. I think you've said it. I think you. I think you. You've explained yeah. it well. You know. I think that's exactly what it is. For me, a lot of times, you know what? It's not even about the records. It's about the process of looking for records. And, you know, it's not really that I, I need to have all these records. It's just that I love the, the space and there's the sort of meditative space of being mm. in a record shop and finding, um, ah, <laughs> you know, the, core, the relationship between buying records and, and writing poetry is this for me, is the fact that you never know what you're going to get. Mm. It's always a surprise. Every new line is a surprise. Every new line as a poet, you are writing a line that's never been written before. Mm. That's the challenge we're up against as poets. We're like, I got to write something that is completely new, that no one's read. They've read about this idea, but not like this. this. You know? So that's what we're, that's what we're doing each time. We're making decisions. How do I do this in a way that hasn't been said before? And in the same way, you go to a record shop, a second hand record shop, you're looking through the bins. You don't know what you're going to find. And that's the pleasure of it. The pleasure is not necessarily in, in collecting everything. The pleasure is in being surprised. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the relationship for me between buying records and, writing poetry and that's why i like to do that's why the first thing i do in a city is find out where the record shop is Mm. and i go and (laughs) center myself in that space yeah (laughs) and anthony's been an absolute pleasure speaking thank you so 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 much and and i'll see you on the other side man yeah man always thank you thank you thank you thank you for listening to apples and snakes the podcast i've been your host Yomi Shode, and I hope you have enjoyed today's deep dive into the lives of black British poets and creatives. Thank you to our audio producer, Drew Hawley, at the Lab Studios. If you want to find out more about Apples and Snakes, head over to applesandsnakes.org and follow at Apples and Snakes on all social media channels. And remember, if you like what you are hearing, please please subscribe wherever you would usually listen to your podcast and rate us and leave a review on Apple 